Hello and welcome to the Anthology of Heroes podcast, the podcast where we share the stories of heroic figures who altered the course of history. Anthology of Heroes is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Elliot Gates, and today we've got a particularly interesting person sharing their expertise on a fascinating subject. With a career that spans continents, Dr. Almond Hint's expertise lies in the exploration of ancient texts, rituals, and traditions. And today she's here to share her knowledge about Zoroastrianism. If you don't know what Zoroastrianism is, then you wouldn't be the only one. Zoroastrianism is a religion. At its core, it's a battle between light and darkness, good and evil, guided by the teachings of the prophet Zoroaster, sometimes called Zarathustra. The earliest written reference to Zoroastrianism is about 2,600 years old, but many scholars estimate it's even older than that, making it one of the world's oldest religions, predating Christianity, Islam, and possibly even Buddhism. While its historical significance is undeniable, what makes Zoroastrianism truly fascinating is how it continues to influence our world today. Zoroastrianism's principles of ethical living, the pursuit of truth, and the constant battle between good and evil continue to resonate with people in all walks of life. Its impact can be seen in various aspects of art, philosophy, even movies. Watch any Marvel film if you don't believe me. For centuries, Zoroastrianism was one of the largest religions in the world. In the Roman Empire, there was Christianity, and in the Persian Empire, Zoroastrianism. But during the Muslim conquests of the late 7th century, the Persian army fared considerably worse than the Roman Empire against the attackers. Much worse, actually. They were effectively wiped out. In the face of this Islamic invasion, Christianity was shielded by the Roman Empire, but when the Persian Empire collapsed, Zoroastrianism collapsed with it. But the most dedicated clung to their old ways. And right up to today, around 120,000 people still continue to practice this ancient religion, rock star Freddie Mercury being one of them. Their numbers, though, are dwindling. In our modern world where attention spans are short and time is a premium, for children growing up in Zoroastrian families, the idea of praying in a language that they can't understand and performing long, complicated rituals and offerings is unappealing. And this is where Dr. Hintz comes in. Dr. Hintz's research has helped understand, catalogue, and ultimately save these ancient rituals and their meaning. So today, Dr. Hintz and I will be taking a deep dive into all things Zoroastrian. We're going to learn about the strange history behind Avestan, the literal language of the gods that Zoroastrians still chant in their fire temples to this day, though they've long forgotten what the words mean. We're going to talk about Zoroastrianism's unlikely links to Hinduism and theorize just how old this religion possibly is. We're going to talk about what it means to be a Zoroastrian, taking a closer look at the most important tenets of the religion, the duality of good and evil, the truth and the lie, and light and darkness. Then we'll come to my favourite part, learning about the sacred flames, different flames that need to be lit from different sources, one of them being bolt lightning. We'll hear about the ancient ceremonies, like the yajna, that precious numbers of priests still practice faithfully to this very day, and then Dr. Hintz will guide us through the long, sad decline of Zoroastrianism. Starting with the Arab invasion, we'll see this religion that once spanned continents wither under the Arab Jizya tax, and then almost disappear under the crushing Mongol invasion of the 13th century. From there, we'll see it become a rural cult practiced by impoverished peasants in border towns, before arriving at the present day where somewhere around 10,000 people still faithfully cling to this religion in its native land of Iran.
The thing that always wows me about this is that Zoroastrianism wasn't some little cult practiced by a bunch of Celtic warlords in some little pocket of Europe. For centuries, it was the religion of one of the most highly organized and advanced states in the world. And then almost overnight, it was gone. Imagine if today we were looking back and thinking, oh, what was that religion called that the Romans followed? Christianity, that's it. It's weird to think that how important this practically forgotten religion once was, and that in a generation or two, these rituals and ceremonies that people have been doing for the last 3,000 years will probably come to an end. Is that sad, or is that just the rite of passage as civilization marches on? If nothing else, it's a reminder of the impermanence of culture and religious traditions, and a prompt for us as people to celebrate our diverse heritage. So, time to rekindle the flames. Let's get into it. The story of Zoroastrianism, the forgotten religion of ancient Persia. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Anthology of Heroes podcast, the podcast sharing stories of heroism and defiance from across the ages. Today we've got a special guest, Professor Almut Hintzer from the SOAS University of London. Professor, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you very much. All right, so today we're going to be talking about Zoroastrianism. So can you give a bit of background on yourself, how you came to be studying this, what got you interested in it, that kind of thing? Yes. Uh, when I started going to university, I had no I, no clue about the existence even of Zoroastrianism, although I had heard of the Magi, the story of the Magi in, uh, in the Bible. Uh, but otherwise, I knew almost nothing about it. And uh, in fact, I started studying languages. And in particular, I was absolutely fascinated by the ancient Greek language. I'd had Latin at school, but that never really captured my imagination. But then as soon as I started studying Greek, ancient Greek, I was hooked. And I spent all my time studying this language in those days. I just finished school. And uh, through Greek, uh, I discovered that languages actually have a history, that uh, what we use as a language that actually has a very long history. And so I got more and more involved in the study of the history of Indo-European languages, and I moved from ancient Greek to Sanskrit. And uh, while doing that and uh, focusing on Sanskrit, my teacher uh, Dr. Elizabeth Tucker drew my attention to the ancient Iranian languages, and in particular the Avestan language. And I started uh, studying that language and decided to do my PhD. And uh, there I got really deeply involved in the study of the most ancient and sacred texts of the Zoroastrian religion. I moved to England in 1997 and was invited to teach Zoroastrianism, the Zoroastrian religion, at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And that's what I'm doing to the present day. Right, right. Well, quite a resume there for sure. So on the note of those uh, sacred texts you were talking about, maybe you can give us a bit of a background into what Zoroastrianism is. Is it a religion? Is it a cultural group? Uh, what is it? Where do we start? I think we should start uh, with it as a religion. And uh, it starts with a man called Zarathustra. Many will have heard of Nietzsche's work, 
thus spake Zarathustra. But uh, Zarathustra, this figure, is uh, central to the Zoroastrian religion, and that's where actually the names, which we say we say here, Zoroastrianism, where that name comes from. Zoroaster is the Greek form of the name Zarathustra. The Iranian form is Zarathustra. And that's how this name also occurs in the ancient Iranian texts. And they are referred to as the Gartas of Zarathustra. So they are ascribed to him. When worshippers recite these texts and priests recite them in the rituals to the present day in this very ancient language, which is more than 3,000 years old, they still pray in that language. And uh, they relate directly to Zarathustra because that was the language in which Zarathustra formulated his message. This message was communicated to Zarathustra by his god, Ahura Mazda, in that language, in that Avestan language. So that gives this language this very special status within the Zoroastrian religion. And at the same time, they have done an, an immense service to the study of the history, not only of the Iranian languages, but of Indo-European languages, because the Avestan language is one of the oldest surviving witnesses of an Indo-European language which have been preserved within the religious practice up to the present day. Wow. Well, so it's almost like in the same way Latin is the sacred language of Catholicism, this is a sacred language that's just preserved almost for a ritualistic purpose. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, it is for ritualistic purposes and also for private prayer. The Zoroastrians pray by heart. That's how it used to be done. Nowadays, the memorization has declined and Zoroastrians don't know so many texts by heart anymore. But until very recently, maybe just one or two generations ago, uh, the Zoroastrian lay people would have learned large amounts of texts by heart in the Avestan language without understanding them. And up to the present day, the training of the priests mainly consists of memorization of large, large amounts of texts in the Avestan language, which they then recite in formal rituals, especially in their solemn rituals. Right, right. So they're reciting all of these prayers, and in some cases you mentioned they don't even really know what they're saying. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Wow, that's fascinating. Is there the equivalent of a, you know, a Bible, a Quran, a Torah or something, or is it much more just by heart, like you said? Much more by heart. And in fact, it's quite different from Semitic traditions, as you just mentioned, the Quran or the Bible, which are traditions of uh, from Semitic civilizations. And the Semitic people were very literate people. And uh, they goes back to the Mesopotamian culture and uh, where they invented a writing system. And they used, they had a writing system from the 3000s BC onwards. In contrast, the Indo-European Indo speakers, they didn't write until much, much, much later. And uh, they usually learned how to write from cultures into whose lands they had migrated. They, they took over or they learned how to write from the indigenous population, the Minoan civilization who had a writing system. In Iran, the earliest written document 
from Iran is actually from 520 BC from the Achaemenid king Darius. He had a cuneiform writing system invented um, and that imitated the great Babylonian tradition. But at the same time, there was writing around uh, in the form of the Aramaic script, which was an alphabetic script. And the Achaemenid kings, they started using that writing. That language, the Aramaic language and the Aramaic writing for practical purposes. So then we start having writing that they use not only the Aramaic script, but also the Aramaic language to convey messages. And the way they did it was that they had these professional scribes, Aramaic people. Uh, The Aramaic scribe would be bilingual and uh, a Persian would dictate a text and the Aramaic scribe would translate it in his head into Aramaic and write it in Aramaic language, in Aramaic script. And then that letter would be sent maybe to Sogdiana in the northeast of Iran and then read by a bilingual Aramaic Sogdian scribe, uh, read it out in the Sogdian language. And so the Aramaic language was used as a system, as an encoding system, a system of communication. And it is out of that script, Aramaic script, that then later on um, in the Middle Iranian period, they started to use then the Aramaic script also to write Persian and other languages. So that's how then a written tradition very slowly, very, very slowly emerged. And it only took foot really uh, during the Sasanian period, which was from the third to the seventh century of the Christian era. So, so much later. And alongside always this Western Zoroastrian a liturgical tradition would continue in an oral form. They would never write. They would not write these texts until late in the Sasanian period, that means around 600 of the Christian era, Zoroastrian priests felt they should actually write down the texts which they recite in the rituals. And what they did was they invented the Avestan script out of the the script which by then was being used for writing Middle Persian. And out of this script, they developed the Avestan script, which has 52 letters or even more. What they did was that they wrote the sound, not the meaning. They just wrote what they heard and they identified all the different sounds when a priest recites Avestan. And so the Avestan script reproduces the words as they spoke them. It's a phonetic script. And that, again, indicates that meaning played no role in the tradition of these sacred texts. Yeah, it was just about reciting it for the, for the, for the sake of it, so to speak, was it? Yes, to produce sound, to produce the sound and the communication, not between human beings. It is between human beings and their deity. And that is Ahura Mazda. And Ahura Mazda speaks Avestan, of course. He communicated in Avestan with Sarasushtra, and that language has remained the language of communication between the worshippers, be they priests or lay people, and their god Ahura Mazda. Wow. And going back to that, Ahura Mazda, the, the kind of deity, and then we've got Zarathustra, who, I don't know, something like a prophet or something. I'm- a human being, but the man. 
a priest. Right, right. What, what was the background of the religion in terms of, you know, was there a story like we've got in the Bible? And where does fire get involved in this as well? Because obviously fire is a core component of Zoroastrianism, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. This, um, this religion has very deep roots back into the prehistoric times of the second millennium BC, even earlier into the third millennium BC. And uh, it takes us uh, into Central Asia and, um, and Southern Russia. It's often the, the ancestors of the uh, Iranians the ancestors of the Iranians share a common heritage with the people, the Indo-Aryan people of the Vedic civilization, which then established itself in northern India, first in the Indus Valley, and then it moved eastwards and southwards. And from there, we have the Vedic texts. That's the, the, those are the sacred texts of Hinduism. This ancient Iranian tradition and the old Indo-Aryan tradition, they are like two sisters, two sister languages or two sister civilization, which have a common parent out of which they emerged. These people which belong to that common parent civilization, they did neither live in Iran nor in India, but they lived in this in Central Asia and further up to the north. So these are the prehistoric seats out of which they emerged by migration. They were pastoralists and breeders of uh, domestic animals, and they were constantly looking for new lands, new pastures for their animals. So they moved. And the the kind of battle between good and evil, that's a kind of reoccurring theme, isn't it? Light and darkness. How does that fit into the story behind uh, what Zarathustra (laughs) did? Yes, so we have then into that prehistoric civilization. We have we we then have this figure of Sarasustra, whom we locate somewhere, maybe in what's today the areas Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, that area there. And that what the texts tell us is that he had a revelation through good thought. He received a message from. His god Ahura Mazda, that deity Ahura Mazda as a deity is not found in the Vedic tradition. So it's an Iranian innovation, and it is first found in the Gathas as a god. And there you hear, you can have a, you hear a voice. The eye is very often, you know, the person, the speaker wants to know how to worship Ahura Mazda correctly. And is also worried that he may worship him wrongly and anger him through his, his type of ritual which he performs and through the words which he says. And in these texts from the earliest times onwards, we have a very strong dichotomy between right and wrong and good and evil uh, and between truth or order, which is asha, and the lie. Druj. And then also between people who embrace Asha, who embrace the truth, and those who follow the lie. And then what we also find very pronounced in the Gathas is that the worship of Ahura Mazda and of his creations 
because Ahura Mazda there is presented as a creator god who creates life on two levels, on a spiritual level and on the physical level. And the physical world is a manifestation of his first spiritual creation. It comes out of there. So that is Ahura Mazda, who is always good. And then there are the false gods, and they are referred, these are the divas. Interestingly, this word diva is an ancient Indo-European word. We have a cognate in Vaiti, and there, deva, the cognate of a Western diva, means god. They are the gods who are worshipped. So the Vedic people are the diva. <laughs> deva worshippers, of course, because that's the old meaning of this word. Deva means God. Just that in Iranian only, this Deva word has become highly, highly negative. And anybody who worships Divas is a very bad person. <laughs> so they have been demonized. The old gods have been demonized. And it has to be said that this phenomenon is starts with the Gathas. It's not found before then. We have no other sources. Maybe it was there already, but our sources only attest attest this negative meaning of Daiva only from the Gathas onwards. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known? but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency. On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So you can say then, all right, um, this belongs to the innovations. There are innovations in the Zoroastrian religion, which may set it apart from the Vedic religion and also from what we reconstruct for this common Indo-Iranian ancestor religion, where Daiva must still have been a positive meaning. On the note of other gods, obviously, this is a religion that that pushed up against Christianity, particularly in the in the Eastern Roman Empire. So, was it one of those religions that was spread by the sword, or was it just purely kept for the heartland of Persia? We have no evidence that it was spread by the sword. The religion did spread; it became the dominant religion amongst the Iranians, 
and there was a very strong imperative for the Iranians to worship Aura Mazda and not to worship any divers. But uh, it is uh, a feature of the Zoroastrian religion that it has remained a religion of the Iranian people. It never really spread far beyond that. Um, the only instance where it spread to another country is Armenia, where Zoroastrianism was very, very well represented. And Armenian also, the Armenian language took a lot of Iranian words in it, uh, absorbed loan words, lots of Iranian loan words during the Parthian and the Sasanian period. That's the only instance. Zoroastrianism has remained the religion of the Iranian people. Mind you, the Iranian empire was very far-reaching. The Achaemenid empire from about from Cyrus onwards, from 550 BC onwards, until uh, from until the invasion of Alexander in three, the defeat of the last Achaemenids in 330 BC, that spread from the Indus River to Anatolia to the coastline, the Mediterranean coastline, and then into Egypt. So all of that was under Iranian rule. And Zoroastrianism spread into all these areas. And we have documents from far-flung lands which were not Iranian. So from Egypt, for example, they were there, and also from Anatolia. In Anatolia, Zoroastrianism was uh, very strong. And that continued uh, through the Parthian period, which started in the 3rd uh, century BC and went on until 224 of the uh, Christian era. So for almost 500 years, Zoroastrians were traveling in all these areas, although not all of them remained under Iranian rule. Uh, and of course, they were then constantly fighting with the Romans. But the fights, they were all about power and influence and land and domination. The Iranians were not so uh, want to spread the religion to other lands. So this is a religion that's been practiced for about a thousand or so years by the time the sixth, sixth or seventh century comes along and, and Islam takes a hold of Persia. So what happens to it after that? Does it go kind of a bit clandestine underground or how long does it last for moving forward? The Arabs um, in, started to make inroads into the Sasanian Empire, which was a world power at the time, constantly fighting then against uh, the Byzantine Empire. They then eventually overran Iran, and Iran became part of the Caliphate. However, Zoroastrianism was very strong in Iran. The Iranians, they were uh, mainly Zoroastrian. There were also Christians, and there were Jews. But uh, Zoroastrianism was the, the dominant religion. The Arabs were actually not so much interested in converting them all to Islam. Instead, they were interested in the Iranians paying tribute. And in addition, they also imposed the poll tax, a practice which they had taken over from the Sasanian state organization. <laughs> and uh, all non-Muslims had to pay a poll tax. The jizya, exactly, uh, in order to be allowed to practice their religion and not be killed. 
And uh, so that was a, a massive source of income for the caliphate and later on for the other, for the succeeding states of the uh, Islamic uh, and Arab Islamic rulers. So Zoroastrianism states uh, the dominant, remained the dominant religion for about 400 years. Conversion to Islam was not so much encouraged. And actually, the converts, they were first not really accepted fully by the Arabs because they also made a distinction between Arab and Iranian. Iranians are not Arabs. They didn't mind them to remain Zoroastrians as long as they paid the jizya. Um, it was even the preferred solution. <laughs> um, but then Iran suffered two more invasion, one in the 11th century by the Turks coming from Indo-Asia, and then 200 years later in the 13th century by the Mongols especially the Mongol invasion, caused so much destruction. And that really exerted the death blow to the Zoroastrians. And lots of fire temples were destroyed. And the Zoroastrians then withdrew to the desert towns of Kerman and Yazd, mainly. And there, that's where they then continued practicing their religion, hoping to remain unnoticed. So very much on the fringes of society by that point, and was, was it a bit more of a rural thing? Yes, absolutely, a rural thing, and they were more and more impoverished. And uh, at some point, also Islamic law made a rule that anyone, a family member of a non-Islamic family, who would convert to Islam would inherit all of the family property. And there were individuals who betrayed their families and converted to Islam, and that caused a lot of bad blood within Zoroastrian families. So they they impoverished. Uh, today, we have about 10,000 Zoroastrians left in Iran. Wow. Okay. I was going to ask about them. So do you know, are they persecuted heavily today, or is it still, is it a freedom of religion kind of situation? or? Yes, they are tolerated. They are like all non-Muslims, uh, so they could never be a minister, but they are still protected. They are recognized as a minority. So all the the people who were allowed to pay the jizya, which were the Jews, the Christians, Sabians, and the Zoroastrians, these four groups they had the option of paying the jizya. And uh, for the Zoroastrians, it was uh, abolished eventually in the 1880s, in 1882. And that's the case to the present day. And that means they can have a member of parliament. So they have a, a representative in the Iranian uh, parliament. And so do the other minorities, the Christians and the Jews, one representative, but that one representative is allowed to speak only about matters which pertain to their to the minority to which which they represent. It sounds like it's quite a federalized religion now. There's no one like the Pope or something who is governing all affairs of Zoroastrians worldwide, is there? Yeah, it, that started to decline with the Arab invasion, with the Muslim conquest of Iran. They used to, in the Sasanian period, it was a highly organized and hierarchically structured clergy with a top priest who styled himself alongside the king of kings. There was a priest of priests and the king of kings. And then below him, there was a, an army of, uh, of priests. 
and they were extremely powerful and they had a very clear structure of authority, of religious authority. And all of that uh, gradually declined. They still, these religious leaders still continue to exist for quite some centuries after the Arab conquest. The top priest, his title was then replaced by the spiritual leader of those of the good religion, Hudenan. Uh, that's how the Zoroastrian, even today, Behdin, it means the one of the better religion, literally. This is how the Zoroastrians refer to themselves. And and so they had a leader, and that leader then eventually he he transferred also to the area of Yazd, and that's where he res, resided. But the, the structures of authority broke down, and then of course we have a, a diaspora community of Zoroastrians in India. Their story goes that they left Iran after the Arab conquest of Iran and they settled in India. It was mainly justified then in search of religious freedom, but also contacts between Iran and India go back well into the Achaemenid period. So there have always been contacts, business contacts, trading contacts. So they didn't move into completely unknown land. But uh, they settled there as families in greater numbers, and they started forming their own communities there, built their own temples, their own places of worship, and also towers of silence where they would expose their dead. And these are always indications that they actually properly settled there in, the, in this area. And in India, they became known as the Parsis because they came from Persia. Yeah, and in India, they could uh, practice their religion unchallenged. They refrained from trying to proselytize, obviously, in order not to interfere with Hindu practices and upset the, the host country. Uh, they were respected and tolerated and were allowed to practice their religion, which they did. And the ritual, the, the priestly structure in in India is uh, such that they do have a, a hierarchical organization of priests, but they have several of the chief priests. They are called Dastur, which is uh, the highest priestly title. In India, they are the spiritual leaders, and they are usually the priests who are at the most uh, sacred fire temples, which is a victorious fire called a victorious fire temple, the highest grade of fire, which has to be lit from 16 different sources, including from lightning. It's very complex wow. to establish one of those fire temples. Yeah, I bet. Yes. So these, uh, each of these fire temples has a dastur uh, at its head. And uh, they are the together. They are the spiritual leaders amongst the Zoroastrians of India. What is the significance of fire? They don't worship the fire directly, do they? It's not part of it, is it? No, they don't worship the fire in itself as fire, but they worship the fire because it is the visible form of their god Ahura Mazda, and the fire is also addressed as the son of Ahura Mazda. And in one of the oldest texts of the Avesta, in the Yasna Haptang Haiti, fire, the ritual fire, is addressed. The heavenly fire, the son of Ahura Mazda, is also addressed and is invited to come down and merge with the ritual fire. 
And from that moment onwards, Aura Mazda is, is present within the ritual fire. During the ritual performance, from then on, they are in the presence of their deity, of their chief god, of their god. That's what, where in Zoroastrianism, the significance of the ritual fire lies. Zoroastrians always pray facing a source of light, be it the sun or be it a flame. It is the focus of, of their worship. Uh, because they see they see it as the body of Ahura Mazda, and that's how the ritual fire is described. Then, the most beautiful body of Ahura Mazda, his visible form. When you have to have the fire being lit from different sources, can you explain that a bit more? Oh yes, yes, they have, uh, and they have these different sources of of ritual fire, which have to be it has to be produced in these different ways, 16 different forms of fire, and each of them has its own name. And um, But the one lit from lightning is the most difficult one. And this is just meant to be different forms of Ahura Mazda, is it? Is, is that the symbolism for 16 different? I think this is just that it's these different types of fire. They just express this special feature of this particular fire. It symbolizes the complexity and the sanctity of this fire. And then they have most complex consecration ceremonies of that fire. So it's also the consecration which makes it so special. Consecrated fire always needs to burn, always. It needs to be fed. It should never go out. That's what is one of the duties of the priests, to feed the fire. It's a living being, and it is fed over the 24-hour days. It's divided into five sections, and in each of these sections, the fire is fed by the priests by performing a special fire-feeding ceremony, adds more fuel to the fire, which would then last into the next section of the day. Fascinating. I've got to ask, were there any other rituals that were a bit, well, interesting or a bit foreign or exotic sounding to us that, that you can think of as well? Yes. So we have the the rituals which have to be performed in a special ritual space. We call them inner rituals. Nowadays, they take place within a fire temple. And these are the so-called solemn rituals during which the fire of Ahura Mazda comes down and is present in the ritual fire. During these rituals, the most ancient texts are being recited. The priests also perform ritual actions. And these ritual actions are quite complex, and one doesn't really understand very well what is going on when one just watches it. But uh, some of these actions are very, very ancient. Um, and we find similar actions also in Vedic ritual. So one of the things which they do is that they prepare a special drink from a plant which is called, in Iranian, in Avestin, it's called the Hauma plant. Um, and in Vedic, it's the Soma. And it is a Soma ritual, a pressing ritual, in which this plant, a, a juice is extracted from this plant by pounding it in a mortar and a pes- with a pestle. Then it's mixed with water and with different ingredients, also um, a bit of milk, and other plants are added. And then this concoction is consumed ritually by the priest. 
and it's supposed to have some intoxicating effects on the person who consumes it. Yeah, so this is the main ritual action which is performed. And it's actually triplicated. It happens three times. Once in the preparatory ceremony, and then it's repeated twice more during the main ceremony. And in addition, also in the Zoroastrian ceremony, there is a special ritual uh, to, for the fire, in which the fire is, uh, it's a litany to the fire, in which the fire is extolled as Ahura Mazda's creation and as his son and as Ahura Mazda's visible representative. And then there is also another part in which the water is being worshipped and the waters are made to flow and the chief priest, he pours water backwards and forwards from one cup to another and makes the waters flow. And of course, this is this symbolizes the water on earth, which has to fertilize the earth so that all the plants can grow and life is uh, promoted. Fascinating. And all these rituals are still going today in the, in the temples that still celebrate it today. Indeed, yes. But only in India. They used to be formed also in Iran by Zoroastrian priests there until quite recently, until about the mid-20th century. Then, sadly, in Iran, the Zoroastrian priests lost the know-how. The tradition broke, and it just shows how important is the training of the priests and the handing down of the know-how, how to do this. And this happens when they are educated, the young priests, the learning priests. They, they learn the text by heart, and they learn also the actions which they have to perform. And in Iran, the ritual was thought to be too difficult, maybe also uh, Zoroastrians didn't request it anymore. This all happened in Iran during the Pahlavi period, that there was, you know, all this modernization going on. And there was also a debate about then uh, praying in the vernaculars, praying in one's own language. Why should I pray in a language which I don't understand, <laughs> in the Avestan language? And um, so this was also up to the present day that followers of the religion, lay people say, we should. why should I learn these prayers by heart? But then also... Uh, a decline in the priestly training. And uh, so it, it just broke down in Iran and these inner rituals are no longer performed. They are still performed in India where we have a Zoroastrian training school for priests, but only one. And it's the only safe place in India where we know that they learn how to perform these inner rituals. At the moment, they have about 17 pupils and the children are sent when they are still quite little six maybe at the age of six it's a boarding school in Bombay uh, the Dada Atonan Institute there the priests they, the aspiring priests are trained they memorize first the most basic ritual the yasna which when it is performed takes about two and a half hours with constant recitation of our Western text and complex ritual actions being performed. And uh, then they also, after the first graduation, they learn additional texts, which is, in, which is inserted into the yasna to make a bigger ritual, and that is the visperat. So they learn these two uh, rituals to perform by heart, and then they have their second graduation after that. 
So they are fully trained and they are still able to perform these rituals. In my recent um, research project, which was funded by the European Research Council, that project was called the Multimedia Yasna. It has just come to an end. And there we filmed a full performance of a Yasna ritual in Bombay, Mumbai, in that priestly school. The priest staged it for us. But a stage ritual and a real performance is exactly the same because invariance is a much, much great feature of these rituals. It should always be the same. I'd love to see it if you've, if you've got the video of it, if, if you can share it. Oh, yes. You can. Yes. I've got a link and uh, it can be watched and it's actually interactive. That would be great. It's most, most welcome. Yes. I suppose my final question. So in your opinion, what does the future of Zoroastrianism look like? Is it a religion growing? Is it shrinking? Sadly, the numbers are, are declining. Uh, there nowadays, there may be just under 70,000 Zoroastrians in India. And uh, then the rest is a global di diaspora. There are quite a few in the United States and in Canada. Um, and uh, then there are about 5,000 in the United Kingdom and uh, some individ individuals or Austrians also in continental Europe. There are some in Australia. There were, used to be quite a strong community in Hong Kong and uh, also in East Africa, but most of them have left now. So altogether, we estimate between 110 and 120,000 Zoroastrians worldwide. And how is it going? How it is, is it developing? The most traditional practice of Zoroastrianism is found in India, where we can film still witness the projects, uh, the, the, the practice of the religious practice, the traditional religious practice. There is a strong, relatively strong and growing stronger and stronger communities are there in the United States. And uh, there, new forms of religious practice are developing there. And it will be interesting to see how the future will, will be. I don't know how, for how long these inner rituals, which, I've, which we filmed in Multimedia Yasna project, how long they are going to survive. I've just got another grant, uh, again, from the European Research Council to film a Visparet ceremony. So we are going to do that, hopefully, at the end of this year or early next year to to make sure that we at least we have got footage of it. Yeah, chronicle them. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, to document it. In, in, in the United States, there is quite strong groups who prefer not to pray anymore in the Western language. So um, Zoroastrians want to know about their religion and they want yeah. to understand more. So there is a great desire to understand the religious religion better. And this is obviously very much to be welcomed. And hopefully alongside with it will also come an appreciation of the this ancient religious tradition, which the priests have preserved. And that that's going to continue as well. It would be a shame to lose it now after it's survived so many you know, cataclysms of human events, world wars and religions coming and going and, you know, everything. Um, so it's fascinating. Well, the, the Zoroastrians have a motto, which is good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And this is what has kept them going up to the present day. 
Fair enough. All right. Um, well, thank you very much, Professor, for coming on the show. It was uh, great to speak to you about your work and super interesting. Uh, I'll make that that recording that you've you've sent through live. I'm sure everyone can appreciate that as well. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Elias. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.